Hello, and welcome back to another special interview show. From Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I am Kasha Kastraba, your guest interview host and an associate producer of this podcast. Today, I'm excited to interview Mohammed Mirkahari, a leader in national security policy, former presidential appointee under the Obama administration, and a current special advisor for the Department of Defense. Mohammed, if you could give us a brief introduction, that would be great. Hello, my name is Mohammed Mirgahari. I am currently the National Security Fellow at Seton Hall University in the School of Diplomacy and International Relations. The Department of Defense is a Chief of Operations, as you said, as a presidential appointee in the front office of TSA that falls under Homeland Security. Great. So I've prepared some interview questions here. First, I'd like to ask you, your career has developed alongside a significant shift in United States foreign policy, graduating from undergrad at Seton Hall in 2002, shortly after 9-11, going to school just outside of New York City. How did 9-11 impact you going into your master's degree and later when choosing a career in national security? And are there any other personal experiences that helped shape your career path? I'd say 9-11 impacted everybody in this New York, New Jersey area significantly, especially during our time in college and undergraduate. Shortly after 9-11, I, I wanted to join one of the federal agencies to support and be a part of national security. Everything, the government is slow, so it took a while, and I continued my education going to pursue my master's degree at Seton Hall University as well. And in my last year of graduate school, I received the call to join the government. You know, I did not have that career trajectory initially. I was more of a business and the sports marketing side, but obviously after those events of 9-11 that day significantly altered my plans for what I wanted to do and how I wanted to give back to our nation. Right. And were there any other personal experiences that helped shape the career path or was that the main one? I think that was the main one. You know, I, I did know a lot of people who were unfortunately impacted by it, losing loved ones and family members and we were able to, to see the smoke from the rooftop of Walsh Gym. And so we were very close to it and, and intimate. And it feels like yesterday, even though it was almost 22 years ago. Right. How has the field of national security developed in the last 20 years? And how do you see it changing in the future going off of that? Well, obviously, we were in two wars in both Iraq and Afghanistan, and there was a lot of money at that time in the global war on terrorism. So the government was hiring significantly, bringing in people from all backgrounds, all experiences. And I think within the last 20 years, we plussed up a good amount. And I think we're going to do a little bit of a correction. And we, we still need to recruit. The national security arenas always need younger people. They need people with varied backgrounds and experiences. But I think with everything changing and even national security threats, we're going to see a different type of national security professional coming into the field. Right. And going off of that, what's your advice for young international relations students or even just professionals who have interests or don't know exactly what pathway they want to pursue? Like you said, you weren't originally planning to go this path and then you changed. So what kind of advice do you have for people who might not know what they want to do yet? I would say the path is, you know, obviously, if you're interested in national security or national relations, always be current, always educate yourself the more you can inside and outside of school go to networking events go to talks you know think tanks in the new york new jersey area always hold events and really make yourself a well-rounded person i think that's one thing that we look at when we recruit into the national security spectrum we'll think that it's one unique area or one 
background that they look for, but they look for everything. As the world changes, so does a lot of things that come to national security. So you could be a finance person, you could be a diplomacy person, you could be a communications person. Every one of those backgrounds and different types of training and education you receive does feed into those national security kind of international relations sphere. I would say another important piece is to keep yourself as a desired candidate. And what I mean by that, obviously, is don't get in trouble, don't get arrested. You have to go through a security clearance process. Drug use is something that's frowned upon, even though it's legal in some states. So again, know what you're getting into if you want to go into that field and into that career going forward. Right. So we kind of touched on your background a little bit. Now we're going to talk more about your career and the beginnings of your career. You have experience working in multiple international and domestic posts for the Department of Defense, including the Special Operations Command Central at MacDill Air Force Base in Tampa, Florida. And it's to my understanding that at this post you provided expertise in support for special ops elements of the Army, Marine Corps, Corps, Navy, and Air Force. So how is working providing expertise and support to the military different from working in other areas of U.S. national security now that you have experience in different parts of the national security field? Well, I think a little bit is, you know, I work for the Department of Defense, you know, which does support all the military branches and working with Special operations is a unique opportunity and working with some of the best services and and units that we have in the military. Uh, The expertise and support is everything to ensure that we're giving our military members overseas all the tools and what they need to have successful missions and come back home. So being able to work across all the agents, all the military organizations was really unique because you'd have to experience a little bit of everything as each one has its own cultures, have its own mission. And I think that's something really unique when you're able to work for the Department of Defense, you know, more or less the Pentagon, being able to support those types of military organizations. And then within special operations, you're working across the world. Obviously, when I was there in the Middle East was our number one focus, and that's the CENTCOM, which is Central Command. So being able to provide any background or any support I could was, you know, just something that was part of my position at that time. And would you say that certain areas of security policy are more or less intensive than others, or maybe even certain areas of the military, certain branches are more intensive than the others? You know, I would say they're all intensive. There's nothing that's really less intensive than the other. Everyone, like I said, has its own unique mission, their own priorities, and everyone does it, keeping our nation safe. So I think there isn't one that's more less than another. I think they're all equally important in being able to really understand what they need to be able to fulfill their mission is a great thing that being able to be a part of defense to support really helped out from. Right. And including working in Tampa, you also had some posts abroad. So did you have a favorite post when you worked abroad? Which one and why? I would say one of my favorite posts was working a deployment to Afghanistan. I was in Western Afghanistan, deployed with Marine Special Operations called MARSOC. And, you know, everybody sees all the thing that goes on on TV of the war, but also a lot of the great that we had done at that time, securing Western Afghanistan, securing the people. We saw little girls go back to school. It was very exciting to see that firsthand and being able to support the warfighter that close. So that was one of my favorites that I was able to work. Can you remind us what around what year that was or what years that span? Sure, that was in about 2008, 2009. Okay. 
Another aspect of your career, one that I found the most fascinating while I was reading up about you is, and we briefly mentioned it before, is that uh, you had a presidential appointment under the Obama administration in 2016. You served as a senior advisor to the chief of staff of the Transportation Security Administration, commonly known as the TSA. So can you tell us kind of how that came to be? Sure. So, you know, every administration has a PPO office. The White House PPO office is responsible for placing people. It's the presidential personnel office. At that time, they were looking for somebody who had some Department of Defense experience and some counterterrorism experience for a position that they had open. Typically, TSA gets a lot of DHS people, former aviation people. So they were looking for a little bit of a different background to come in because, you know, again, bringing different experiences and backgrounds to other government agencies really helps them as well. So I applied and I was nominated for the process and then I was selected. Very fulfilling because everyone thinks the TSA is just the screeners, but they do a lot more and their mission is very unique. So from that standpoint, it was a great learning experience and I was able to bring my almost 15 years of experience in the Department of Defense into that position. Right. And you mentioned the mission of the TSA. Do you think you could elaborate on that a little bit more? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the TSA, you know, like I said, is known for screeners mostly, but they actually have a wide range of of missions and, and requirements that they look over from gas and oil pipeline safety and security, from trains, buses, land. So they have a lot of security missions for our nation's transportation system and to an extent overseas for a lot of those requirements that we impose for last point of departure airports, which those are the airports that connect into the United States. So I think being able to see that and learn that, you know, is something that was really unique and to be able to see our transportation officials handled day to day. I mean, it's a front facing agency of the United States government, right? You, anytime we travel, you're going to meet a TSA agent. You're not going to meet a FBI agent every day or an IRS or whichever agency. Another aspect is being the representative of the United States government to a majority of the citizens. Yeah, because I think a lot of time when people typically think of TSA, they just think, oh, someone's checking my passport before I get on a plane. But it really extends much further that than that. Like you said, trains, everything, and transportation. So what was it like working within the presidential administration? And how, if any, did it mold your outlook on the national security and policy decisions of the nation? You know, it didn't really affect it, to be honest. I think, you know, different administrations are different. The Obama administration, I think, was all those administration policy requirements that we had at TSA, I think, were just more of what's going to be consistent with the safety and security of passengers, airlines, aviation, and so on. So we didn't have, you know, hey, do this because it's this policy decision. We never had any of that. So I think, you know, I was also fortunate to work for the administrator, who was a former Coast Guard admiral, my immediate boss was an Air Force colonel. So they were very mission oriented. There wasn't any real politics in it. It wasn't a political appointee game in that sense. So I think that really helped us to do our job, basically. Right. And is there any particular event or assignment within your tenure that challenged you the most? Working out of Washington, D.C. is always a challenge. You know, I worked on and off in Washington, D.C. for a number of years because you're at the flagpole, as we like to call it. So you're kind of closer to the decision makers. Some people know what's going on in the field. Some people really don't. And you have to make your analysis of decisions the best way forward based on the information you're provided. And then you realize that 
what you decide to do in D.C. can affect someone 2,000 miles away who maybe you don't know what is going on or what they do need and so on. So I think that's one of the more challenging positions. And, you know, I think part of growing when you're in the government is to get out of D.C., to go into the front lines, to go into positions in other parts of the country, other parts of the world, because that really makes you a more well-rounded individual. Right. Earlier, we talked a little bit about technology impacting national security, and I wanted to ask, how has the rise of new technology and the internet impacted national security from your point of view, and how has technology benefited the field of national security within the United States? Well, I mean, technology is a double-edged sword, right? So it's helped us a lot of ways with national security. You know, we see extremist forums. We see people posting threats. We're able to find information quickly. We have Google Maps at our fingertips and so on and so on. But so do the bad guys. So the bad guys can recruit easier. The bad guys can put out messages of how to make weapons. The bad guys can do a lot of things, disinformation. So, you know, with everything that we get access to, I mean, it's great, but we also have to fight against it too. So it's it's like a game of whack-a-mole. When the head pops up, you have to hit it down, but they keep popping up. You know, so I think from that standpoint, and it's definitely changed. You know, when I got into national security, the biggest social media platform, and it wasn't even social media, was AOL Instant Messenger, where now it's Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Facebook. And these are things that we didn't have to deal with where now the younger generations do. Right. And, you know, there's so many different types of social media platforms and just so much more information out there now. Do you think that the government has found a way to manage the increasing levels of information out there? No. There's statistics about how many internet pages go up a day, how much traffic there is. You know, it's trying to find a needle in an ocean, not even a haystack, right? So I think it's very hard for the government to do so. I think there's certain entities and certain things we probably do very well, but at the same time, there's a lot of things that we probably don't do well, or we just don't have the bandwidth. You know, it's very hard to be able to to go through YouTube every day, I'm sure, and find extremist videos. Or now it's TikTok, and now it's Twitter. So I think part of it, too, is there has to be some sort of partnership or accountability with some of these private entities as well that these organizations or people use our platforms for. What are some creative ways foreign policy officials can leverage technology and media to make an impact on the world? I think we're doing it, and I think the younger generation is going to help, and I think it's messaging. Anyone can go out with a smartphone, video something in their local neighborhood, and get it halfway across the world. So that's a good thing, and it's also a bad thing. We used to see in some of our war zones that the locals would say, oh, look, they killed 100 people. In reality, you know, that was made up where nowadays we can take our videos, we can use our smartphones, we can use social media to counter some of this information, but to also get positive out as well. We're in certain countries supporting humanitarian missions, but we don't get credit. We're in certain countries supporting the government with, you know, just day to day general things. But you don't see that because the state media controlled television is not talking about that. So I think that's the biggest piece that's really helped us. And I think the more we accept it and come into it, and as younger generations come in, you'll see more of that as well. Right. And I think now with the level of social media reach, a lot more people are getting involved in politics and kind of seeing what's going on in other areas of the world more so than they 
obviously could 20, 30 years ago. How can non-professionals be involved in foreign policy? And do you have any ideas or have heard of any of how people can get involved? I think it's just, you know, like we said before, it's just educating yourself, right? I mean, you now have the world at your fingertips via news sites, via socials, via everything else. So being involved, I think, is first educating yourself. Second, find your organizations that you want to be involved with. You know, if you want to get into politics, you could start at the local level. You could go to the government level, the national level. So I think there's a lot of opportunities that weren't there before. And I think in the era of COVID, where things have changed, where video calls are more acceptable, virtual meetings, you open up a lot of your opportunities because you don't have to necessarily be in a specific location. Right. So shifting the conversation a little bit, you graduated with both your bachelor's and master's degrees from Seton Hall, and you currently serve as a Tom and Ruth Sharkey Distinguished Visiting Scholar within the School of Diplomacy and International Relations. So what is it like coming back and working at Seton Hall within the diplomacy school? It's been a great experience. I mean, one of the things that our program does is we work national security issues for federal agencies from the state department to the pentagon to the white house previously so to be able to come back work with our graduate level students because they are graduate students and help them gain experience that makes them more attractive candidates while putting seat Hall university in washington dc where our presence is obviously more new york new jersey focused has been great you know obviously anytime you can come back to your alma mater it's, it's good to give back and I've, I've enjoyed my time here Right. How's it been rewarding for you if you have any specific examples you'd like to share? And how have you worked to engage young professionals in the field of international relations specifically? My reward, you know, that has that always comes through is when my students get positions within kind of the diplomacy, national security arena and letting them know that our program helps them do that. That's one thing that's very rewarding to me. My students have gone on to the Department of Defense, to think tanks, defense contractors, and I like to think that our program helped get them there or at least be able to give them a little uh, push to be able to get those positions. So that's the most rewarding piece for me. I think that as the program has grown over the last five years, it's gotten more exposure in DC. You know, we are doing very unique things where a lot of schools don't do. So that's another aspect that I've really come to enjoy. You are already very well achieved, obviously, like we've seen in this interview. Um, do you have any professional, were your professional go goals going forward? Are you working on any specific projects right now type of stuff? You know, I always want to grow. You never stop learning. You know, I've been using my background in part of the fence and in transportation and look at different opportunities, both in the private and public sector, bringing the engagement of professionals from the national security arenas into Seton Hall has been something I've really enjoyed as a, as a professional goal. So I think the piece of it is, is just seeing what opportunities are there. I've experienced and been fortunate to experience a lot and now trying to bring some of that knowledge and also opportunities to the next generation, I think, is one of my bigger goals. So from that standpoint, I think that's my immediate goals. Bigger and brighter, I don't know. I mean, uh, we, we learn every day as we move on. So I think that's another piece that I'll have to get to a crossroads and let you know in the future. Right. And just wanted to ask you, 
said you worked both within the public and private sector. Could you talk about how those vary for people who might not know or people who aren't involved in foreign policy and might not know? Sure. I mean, obviously, the, the private sector is much different than uh, the public sector with government. The government moves at the speed of government, and there's sometimes lack of accountability if something's done quickly, if something's done well. Where in the government, when the private sector, you can't have that. You know, you have to be quick. You have to be able to work efficiently. You have to be able to really get ahead of money, in essence, because everything comes down to dollars and cents. So uh, it's definitely different than the government from that standpoint. But there's a lot of things that government experience going into those sectors has brought me as well, where I think you don't gain in the private sector. I think a lot of private sector individuals would benefit from a few years in the government, or at least to learn some of our methodologies and how things are done. But both arenas are very unique. And being able to work in both has been pretty fortunate. And I'd like to ask you, do you have a life philosophy, a quote, or some type of motto that you live by or that's helped you in your career? I think the biggest piece or life philosophy is, is paying it forward. I mean, it's cliche and it's cheesy, but helping anyone you can, you know, putting a hand out is something that I think is very important. You know, I think people tend to think that if I get ahead, that's all that matters. But when you bring people with you or you're able to help them, it's more satisfying than anything else. You know, there's the more chairs you can put at your table for somebody to sit and eat with you, it's a better dinner. So a lot of people, especially you guys in school, you guys in graduate school, you want to be the shining light students and you want to be known as that person. But, you know, helping that one person who might not be that shining light student may help that guy or girl five years from now, or, hey, I know a great internship, let me refer you. And it goes and it follows you all through your life. And I think it comes back to you one way or the other. So I say that's probably one of my biggest life philosophies. Um, and is there anything else that you'd like to share with CN Hall students and others who want to make a difference or find their path in international service? You know, I, I think it's okay to fail. I think we've gotten in a mind frame of it's not, and I think that that's incorrect. I think that you guys as students, as young alums when you graduate, as your first jobs, you know, it's okay to get a hard lesson. It's okay to mess something up, but as long as you learn from it. A lot of times, if we don't learn from it, we become aggravated, we become neglectful of whatever it is, but that's not the right attitude. So I think that's something that I wish I knew when I was at Seton Hall, that it's okay to mess up. It's okay to do something incorrectly, but as long as I'm working to fix it, working to make myself better, that's how it becomes something that's more powerful than any lesson you can learn from a book. So I'll take that every day. You take that, you know, once you leave the university, and I think that's where it'll be more impactful and you'll learn from. Yeah, for sure. As a student, I feel like that is something that I and a lot of others need to hear, um, you know, with the pressure of just you know, graduating soon and going into the career force. So thank you, Mohammed, for taking the time to sit down with an interview with The Global Current. It was so much fun to talk with you about your unique journey and the helpful insights you had to share. The Global Current is brought to you by CN Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU.